0: Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. Today you're going to learn about lithium-ion batteries, about why you have to be careful with baked potatoes wrapped in aluminum foil. We'll take a look at the recent controversy about meat, learn something about Mendeleev and the periodic table. But first, a question. What element was discovered accidentally in 1811 by a chemist who was isolating potassium compounds by burning seaweed? So we're looking for an accidental discovery that was made in 1811 when a chemist was burning seaweed and he chanced upon this element. What element was that? If you know, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. That, of course, is also the number where you can ask your questions. And you can also text me at 514-800. All right, let's get down to lithium-ion batteries because they are fascinating. It's the lightest of all the solid elements, but it certainly isn't the lightweight when it comes to packing a punch. And I'm talking about lithium. That's an element whose compounds are at the heart of the lithium-ion batteries that power our cell phones, our laptops, and of course our electric vehicles. And add lithium carbonate, and we have something really amazing because lithium carbonate can smooth out the highs and lows of bipolar disease. Lithium metal reacts with moisture as well as with oxygen, so it is never found in its elemental state. It has to be refined from lithium aluminum silicate ores, and uh, the largest deposits of this are in South America, mostly in the highlands of Bolivia. And uh, getting the lithium out of there is not all that easy. Uh, Either vapors of hydrochloric acid or chlorine gas can be passed over the ore to produce lithium chloride, and when an electric current is passed through the molten lithium chloride, you get lithium metal uh, and uh, chlorine. The lithium can then be converted into lithium carbonate, which is the compound used to treat bipolar disease, and also into lithium cobalt oxide, and that's the stuff that is used in our lithium-ion batteries. Given the importance of these batteries in our lives, it comes as no surprise that the 2019 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded this past week for the development of lithium-ion batteries to John B. Good Enough, an engineering professor at the University of Texas, Stanley Whittingham, who's a chemistry professor at the State University of New York, and Akira Yoshino, who works with the chemical company, Asahi Kase Corporation, in Japan. Interesting enough, John Goodenough is now 97, and he's the oldest ever recipient of the Nobel Prize. The chemistry of lithium ion batteries is very complex. But the key is that the lithium atom has one electron in its outer shell, and that it is readily removed to form a lithium ion. Now, I'm going to try to explain to you how a battery works. It isn't simple, as I said, and it's especially difficult to do so on the radio without diagrams, but I'm going to give it a shot because I think it is important. Well, the battery consists of an electrode made of a lithium compound, and I said the one that is widely used, is lithium cobalt oxide, and at the other end of the battery is uh, another electrode made of graphite. The two electrodes are separated by an electrolyte solution through which lithium ions can readily move. And then there's also a polyethylene barrier. It's just a few microns thick, and that allows the passage of the lithium ions, but it is impervious to electrons, forcing these to travel through an external circuit. Okay, so let's think what happens when we're charging a battery. A power supply is connected to the electrodes. That sends a stream of electrons, that's what we call an electric current, towards the graphite electrode, and that then takes on a negative charge because electrons are negative. Those electrons then become trapped in the graphite. At the same time, electrons are withdrawn by the power supply from the lithium cobalt oxide electrode and that becomes positive because it has lost electrons. The electrons come from the lithium atoms which then become lithium ions and are attracted to the negative graphite electrode where they eventually become embedded. Why do they not react with the lithium ions that are also there? Because graphite is an insulator and the electrons and the lithium ions are kept from combining and now that cell is charged. When it comes to discharge, instead of a power supply, the electrodes are connected to whatever equipment is to be run on electricity, whether it's a car, whether it's a electric shaver, or whether it's a cell phone. Now the lithium ions are attracted back towards the lithium cobalt oxide electrode from where they came, because being locked into a stable matrix with other metals is a more stable arrangement. But the electrons are unable to flow through the barrier between the electrodes and therefore they must pass through the external circuit and that generates a current there's no question that lithium-ion batteries have changed the way the world functions but as always with any advancement there is a but in this case there are issues about the environmental consequences of extraction of the necessary nickel copper lithium and cobalt from their ores as well as about possible health effects when it comes to the workers involved. Then there is the problem of recycling and concerns about the batteries possibly igniting and causing fires. The processing of ores has a large environmental footprint. It requires a great deal of water, loads of energy, and emits greenhouse gases. Recycling is becoming a bigger and bigger issue as spent batteries from vehicles pile up. Today, only about 5% of batteries are recycled, with the rest ending up in landfills from where they can leak metals that contaminate soil and groundwater. The barrier to recycling is the need for costly plants with sophisticated equipment to treat harmful emissions, as well as the costs associated with the collection, the storage, and transport of the spent batteries. The recycling of cobalt is more critical than that of lithium, since waste from cobalt mining pollutes water systems and has a number of health risks. Exposure to pulverized dust containing cobalt can cause contact dermatitis, as well as respiratory sensitization, asthma, decreased pulmonary function, and shortness of breath. Most cobalt is mined in the Congo, where there is a lack of basic protective equipment such as face masks, no gloves, and because of poverty, child labor is unfortunately common and fire well that's a scary business we have heard stories about cell phones catching fire and airplanes crashing when lithium-ion batteries ignited keep in mind though that relative to the number of such batteries in use the risk of fire is minute how does it happen well it happens when a battery is short-circuited short-circuited means That uh, a current, that is the flow of electrons, goes through a place where it should not be going. Instead of flowing through the wires where it is designed to flow through, it flows back through the battery. Well, this happens when there's damage to the thin barrier that prevents electrons from flowing through the battery. And if electrons then pass through, they generate a current and that can ignite the flammable electrolyte that is in there and it's actually under pressure, so it can even explode. So when does this occur? It can occur if the battery is physically damaged or if faulty manufacturing leaves behind tiny metal particles that are capable of causing a short circuit. Uh, Those were the flaws that uh, resulted, remember, in the recall of the Samsung Galaxy phones at one time. Well, without a doubt, research into improved batteries is intense, and there's no doubt that advances are on the horizon, both in efficiency and safety, and also in recycling technology. But for now, make sure that when you are finished with your batteries, you take them to a recycling center, then at least there's some hope of them being recycled. And uh, if you're interested, this little piece that I just talked about, I, of course, wrote on my laptop, which is... uh, powered by uh, lithium-ion batteries, and I took a number of phone calls while doing it on my cell phone. And I'm also looking to see what the costs are of an electric-powered car. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Before I get to your answers to my question about the accidental discovery of an element back in 1811 when a chemist was looking to extract chemicals from burning seaweed uh, let me uh, address the controversy over the meat study that uh, came out uh, uh, week before last <clears throat> as you know over the years we've been told that we should be cutting back on the amount of meat because it is linked with various diseases, ranging from uh, diabetes to cancer. And uh, processed meats are more suspect than red meat. That's what we were always told. And then we had this series of papers in the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine, a highly respected journal, where the uh, writers, and there were 13 authors uh, of these papers, Concluded that the evidence is too weak to make recommendations about changing our diet of of meat. As you can imagine, this caused a tremendous amount of controversy, with uh, a number of researchers, including some from Harvard uh, uh, Medical School, saying that this is an outrage that that people are being uh, given misinformation, and it went back and forth. So I think uh, I need to throw my two cents into this as well, uh, which I've already done. If, if you read my little piece in the Gazette uh, this week, I try to put it into uh, a capsule form. Uh, first of all, uh, little evidence is not the same as no evidence. And even if we go by the data that is provided by the uh, authors of these papers, I think we can make a case for not uh, for for changing our meat intake. Okay, why do I say this? If we take a look at their data, they say that at most, one in about 200 people will benefit if they cut back by three meat meals a week. And that, of course, does not sound very, very impressive. If you're told that make this change in your diet, your chance of um, any benefit is one in 200, you'd say, well, I mean, that's too little, and I'm just going to go on eating the way that I was eating. It's true that for the individual, that is a very small risk. But for a population, that can have significant benefits because if not just one person, but 100 million people, let's say in North America, would make a change, which is conceivable, we'd have a very significant uh, number of people benefiting, hundreds of thousands of people. So I think it is still fair to make the recommendation. Now, furthermore, of course, uh, to say that there's no need to change our meat consumption, how can you say that without qualifying that? I mean, if someone is eating 15 meat meals a week or five meat meals a week, that's a, a big difference. I don't think that anyone would say uh, that people who are consuming uh, relatively few meat meals a week should cut back. But I think if you're eating 15 a week, then you should cut back. So it isn't really right to say, well, you know, this just shows that we can keep on eating the way that we uh, have been uh, eating. It is also interesting to note that one of the uh, main criticisms of this paper was that one of the 13 authors five years ago had what is perceived to be a conflict of interest. How? Because he wrote a paper uh, about sugar consumption. And uh, there was some funding in that research that came from the food industry. That paper had absolutely nothing to do with meat, nothing to do with what is being talked about now. And he actually was abiding by the letter of the law, according to the journal, because this journal says that if you have any conflict of interest that took place within the last three years, you have to disclose that. Well, this took place five years ago, so he didn't disclose it. He was abiding by the letter of the law, but maybe not the spirit of the law. And he should have disclosed it because I think it makes absolutely no difference. It does not impact on on this paper. Furthermore, I think... uh, Interesting to point out that um, uh, the Harvard School of Public Health, from where much of the criticism came, because they have published a lot of papers over the years about curbing meat intake, they are quite heavily funded by the nut industry and by various vegetable uh, and whole grain producers. So, uh, you know, one could play that game and say there's a conflict of interest there as well. I don't like to play that game. The game that I play is looking at the scientific evidence, not where the funding came from or who wrote the paper. Let's judge the evidence. Let's judge the data and see where that points. And right now, that data points to the fact that our diet should be based on a lot of vegetables, a lot of whole grains, and not that much meat. And Canada's Food Guide has gotten this right. If you look at the plate that they are suggesting, half of it is filled with vegetables and fruits, a quarter is filled with whole grains, and a quarter is filled with various proteins that can be meat, it can be poultry, it can be fish, it can be beans, it can be lentils. I think that's the way to go. Uh, The controversy, of course, will continue because we can never have a proper study about eating meat. You can't have a controlled, randomized trial where one uh, group eats meat the other group is vegetarian because of course if you're not eating meat you're eating something else and you don't know whether or not it is the meat eating or whatever else you're eating that is responsible for whatever change you might note Uh, so these studies are, are just not doable we are restricted to the epidemiological evidence which is very suspect because uh, people, of course, can't remember properly when they're asked to fill out forms about what they ate. They, they don't know amounts. Uh, and they also tend to emphasize things that they think they should have eaten instead of what they ate. And um, I've made some calculations looking at some of those uh, questionnaires, and it seems that people eat more broccoli than the world is capable of producing. So anyway, we're stuck with rather poor evidence when it comes to nutrition. But when you put it all together, uh, I think we're quite on solid ground to saying that uh, the closer we are to a plant-based diet, but not exclusively a plant-based diet, the better off we are. And we're never going to have a final solution to, to questions about nutrition, because the studies that need to be done, in fact, just cannot be done. So, uh, I'm sure that we will be reading more and more about this. There'll be allegations of conflict of interest all over the place and about uh, uh, poor studies. But, you know, we've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies on nutrition, and this is where we end up. I don't think we're going to gain much more by doing more of the same kind of, uh, of studies. So uh, I I think we can leave it at that, that uh, the closer we are to a plant-based diet, the better. Let's eat our fruits and vegetables. I don't think it's important, whether they're organic or conventional. What is more important is to make sure that we are eating enough of them. I think we should be eating our whole grains. And uh, I'm certainly not against eating meat. Uh, I will even occasionally eat a hot dog, as long as there's a hockey game or a baseball game in front of it. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll take a break and be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, I think we've uh, kept poor Helena waiting a long time for an answer to the question. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, good afternoon. How are you? Good. So what's the answer? Um, Well, I don't know. I'm hoping, uh, would it be iodine? Yes, it is. It is. And therein lies an interesting story. Thanks for the answer. Sit back and listen to the story. Okay, back in the early 1800s, the production of potassium nitrate, or saltpeter as it's commonly called, uh, which is, of course, an essential component of gunpowder, and that was a booming industry. And the potassium required was isolated from the ashes that remained after burning seaweed. What a messy business that is. And then one day in 1811, the seaweed tank in Bernard Courtois' Saltpeter factory needed a thorough cleaning, and he decided that sulfuric acid was the right chemical for the job. Within minutes, Courtois was amazed to see the room fill with violet fumes which later deposited on surfaces and formed crystals. He didn't know it, but he had discovered iodine. It was the French chemist gay Lussac who identified the crystals as a new element and named it iod, from Greek for violet. Seaweed is a source of the iodide ion, which in Courtois's lucky accident was oxidized to iodine by the sulfuric acid. This struck a chord with Jean-Francois Quandet, a Swiss physician, who was familiar with the traditional use of sea sponge ashes to treat the swelling in the neck caused by an enlarged thyroid gland known as a goiter. Could it be, he wondered, that sponges also contained iodide and that this was the therapeutic ingredient? Quande went on to successfully treat Goethe's patients with iodine, although he had no understanding of why this worked. Finally, in 1896, German chemist... Eugene Bowman discovered that iodine concentrated in the thyroid gland and suggested that enlargement of the gland was due to its frantic attempt to sequester as much iodine as possible when supply was inadequate. Now it also made sense why people living near the sea rarely suffered from goiter. The seabed contains soluble iodide salt that wash into water and concentrate in plants and animals which are eaten by people. Iodide from the ocean also finds its way into coastal soil from from there into crops. Uh, So inland, there's less iodine, which is why until the early part of the 20th century, the American Midwest was known as the goiter belt. Crops and the animals that fed on them contained very little iodine. The role of iodine was clearly identified in 1914 when thyroid hormone was isolated and shown to contain the element. To remedy the problem of low iodine intake, In 1924, Michigan began to experiment with adding sodium iodide to salt and the rest, as they say, is history. Iodide salt became the world's first functional food. So now you know the story behind uh, iodine. Uh, Let me... uh, Mention once again, our symposium is coming up and uh, October 22nd and 23rd, those dates are approaching very quickly and this promises to be one of the best that we have ever featured because our topic is of interest to everyone because something we all do is age. And uh, on Tuesday, October 22nd, 7 o'clock at uh, the Centre Mont-Royal, which is on the corner of Sherbrooke and University, 1000 Sherbrooke Street West, Dr. David Sinclair of Harvard is going to talk about the fascinating new research about substances in our diet, and maybe in pill form, that can slow down aging. And uh, we will have uh, cosmetic chemist Kelly Dobos talk about what we can do to slow down aging of the skin. And on The next day, on Wednesday, October 23rd, also at 7 p.m. in the same place, Centre Mont-Royal, we will have the legendary Dr. Ruth Westheimer talk about sex after 50, and yet, apparently, there is such a thing. Uh, It is, of course, free and open to the public, but there are no reservations. I think we are going to have a large crowd for this event, so it would be a good idea to come early. So the starting time is 7 o'clock, but I would suggest coming earlier on Tuesday and Wednesday, October 22nd and 23rd at the Centre Montreal. And we have uh, entitled this symposium, Longing for Longevity. And on the evening that Dr. Ruth Westheimer speaks, I will also be speaking, and I will be giving a little talk on longing for longevity. Uh, one other thing that I'll mention is uh, this past week, uh, mark the publication of my 18th book and it's called A Grain of Salt and it is all about the science and pseudoscience of what we eat and it talks a lot about the meat controversy that I I just mentioned and uh, all kinds of interesting uh, issues about uh, our diet. It's not going to make you live forever, Uh, nothing will do that, but I think there's a chance that it will lead to a healthier life by Whatever is uh, is in there. If you're interested in getting a signed copy, uh, I can tell you how to do that. You send me an email. My email is the usual McGill email. It's joe.schwartz. That's j o e. s c h w a r c z at McGill, mcgill.mcgill.ca. And uh, you send me an email. I'll tell you how to go about getting a signed copy um, of the book. Okay. Uh, I saw the Joker this week. The Joker, of course, is uh, the re- recent hot movie, and uh, I don't know what to exactly say about it. Whether you know, I uh, liked it or not. I, I think it was it was interesting. It um, uh, the reason that I I'm mentioning it because it really is about mental illness. And mental illness is a very hot topic. Uh, well, it should always be a hot topic, uh, but uh, especially uh, this month, because uh, it is the uh, month of uh, mental illness and, and how to deal with it. And uh, the Joker's descend into mental illness is, is really what this movie is all about. And he starts out as a, a person who is under care because he is uh, suffering, Uh, It's seemingly from schizophrenia, and he's on a number of medications. But uh, he starts to fall through the cracks when funding is removed for his uh, uh, weekly contact with a, a nurse practitioner and uh, he has no way of, of getting any help and he has no way of, of getting drugs and then he is accosted by some hoodlums and is beaten up and uh, all of this starts a cavalcade of events that leads to him eventually becoming a, a murderer And um, but uh, the story really is about uh, mental health and I think... Uh, it does call attention to the importance of dealing with this condition in a proper way. I would say that if you uh, are somewhat queasy about uh, violence, then this is not a movie for you. But uh, if you're not bothered by that and are interested in some aspects of mental illness, uh, the Joker can uh, be uh, very enlightening. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Why do people bake potatoes wrapped in aluminum foil? Well, if you are going to do this in a conventional oven, the steam that a potato releases is trapped by the foil, and that makes the skin very soft and edible. Another reason for the foil is that it will keep the potato hot for a while after it is removed from the oven. Restaurants, of course, like that. Now, here's a catch. If that while turns into hours, there's a risk that the spores of botulinum clostridium bacteria will germinate and release botulin, an extremely potent toxin. These spores are found in soil and therefore in anything grown in soil. However, they only germinate and produce botulin when they find themselves in an anaerobic, that is, oxygen-free environment at room temperature. Aluminum foil does not allow oxygen to pass through, so potato wrapped in it is in an anaerobic environment. Although botulinum spores are killed if they are held at 120 degrees Celsius for 20 minutes, this actually does not happen in a foil-wrapped potato in the oven, even though the oven temperature is much higher. The foil retains the moisture coming out of the potato, meaning that the temperature at the surface where the spores are found does not exceed 100 degrees Celsius, which of course is the boiling point of water. And it's only exceeded when all of the moisture has evaporated, and then the potato begins to burn and becomes inedible. If the potato is allowed to cool with the foil on it, it will pass through the temperature range between 10 and 50 degrees when germination occurs and botulin is produced. It takes hours for enough botulin to form to present the risks, so there's no problem if the potato is eaten right away. Storing the cooked potato in the fridge is also fine, since the fridge temperature is between two and four degrees. If there's any concern about the possible presence of botulin, well, then you can always uh, heat the potato for six minutes at 80 degrees, because that inactivates the toxin. Botulism from baked potatoes is rare, but it can happen. In 1994, there was a large outbreak in El Paso, Texas that affected 30 people, four of whom had to be put on respirators. Besides respiratory problems, those affected suffered from blurry vision, double vision, swallowing problems, slurred speech, fatigue, dizziness, and the onset of symptoms uh, came roughly 24 hours after exposure. Although most who ate from uh, the dip which was contaminated had at least some signs of poisoning, not everyone did, indicating individual differences in susceptibility. The problem was that this dip that had been served in a Greek restaurant had been made with baked potatoes that had been wrapped in aluminum foil and held at room temperature, but for several days. So again, your risk is very, very small because uh, you're not going to hold those potatoes wrapped in aluminum foil at room temperature for any significant time. But it's an interesting story. Of course, you can always cook your potatoes in the oven not wrapped in aluminum foil. You just have to deal with a little bit of crispy outside. You can also cook in the microwave oven, which makes very good potatoes, but obviously you're not going to wrap them in aluminum foil in the oven. Next, I want to tell you a little bit about the periodic table because this is the year of the periodic table. And, you know, there's something common to just about every chemistry classroom in the world, and that's the periodic table hangs on the wall, and thereby hangs a tale, a tale of an unconventional but brilliant Russian chemist, Dmitry Mendeleev. He was born in Siberia, 1834, youngest in a family of 14 children. His first exposure to science came from stories told by a dissident scientist who had been sent to Siberia, The youngster showed such interest and ability that his widowed mother hitchhiked 14,000 miles to have Dmitri admitted to a school in Moscow. When no one would take him, she persisted until he was eventually allowed to enroll at the Pedagogical Institute in St. Petersburg. Here he became such an outstanding teacher that he was sent abroad to study in Paris and Heidelberg, the German city which at the time was the hotbed of chemistry. On his return, this man who looked more like a caveman than a scientist became professor of chemistry at the University of St. Petersburg, and was soon recognized as the leading light in chemical education. As any good teacher, Mendeleev attempted to organize the knowledge he had to impart in a systematic fashion. But truth be told, chemical knowledge at the time was pretty chaotic. Students basically memorized what happened when chemicals were combined. They learned, for example, that when a piece of sodium was dropped into water, it ignited. A piece of aluminum did not. Nobody really knew why. Mendeleev was convinced that elements did not react in some random fashion. Somehow their properties and behavior had to be systematic. He began by writing the names of the known elements on cards, together with their properties and atomic weights. He knew that potassium behaved like sodium when dumped into water, so he grouped it together with sodium. Similarly, he grouped nitrogen and phosphorus and chlorine with fluorine due to matching properties, and a pattern began to emerge. The properties of the elements were periodic. By virtue of their atomic weights, the elements could be grouped into families with similar properties. And then came Mendeleev's boldest stroke. He predicted from holes in his periodic table that as yet undiscovered elements must exist. He suggested that eka silicon an element with properties like silicon, would be found. And indeed, in 1886, germanium was discovered. The publication of Mendeleev's work in a classic textbook called Principles of Chemistry in 1868 brought fame and fortune. Also brought scandal. Students flocked around the great man with adoration. In one case, this adoration was returned. Mendeleev, the most famous scientist in Russia, fell in love with a 17-year-old student. That was a real problem, because Mendeleev at the time was a married man. Much to the concern of the young lady's parents, he pursued her relentlessly. The noted scientist divorced his wife and was determined to marry his new love. But according to the religious Russian law at the time, a divorced man was not allowed to remarry for seven years. Mendeleev would have none of this and found a priest who for the price of 10,000 rubles was willing to defy the church and marry the happy couple. On account of his fame, no action was taken against the scientist, although the priest was defrocked. When the favoritism was pointed out to the czar, he meekly replied that I admit Mendeleev has two wives, but I have only one Mendeleev. The chemistry between the newlyweds turned out to be really right. The marriage was happy one and produced four children. The second Mrs. Mendeleev outlived her husband and became famous in her own right. After the Russian Revolution, when food was scarce in St. Petersburg and ration cards were issued, Mrs. Mendeleev was given an extra allotment in recognition of her husband's contributions to Russia. She could be easily recognized because she was the only overweight woman in the newly renamed city of Leningrad. Now you know the story behind the periodic table. And we're all all out of time. I just forgot to mention one little thing. On the same day, uh, Tuesday, October 22nd, when we have our symposium, 7 o'clock at night, the same day, in the same place, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, we have a roundtable session with the speakers, And all of you are invited to that as well. So that's at 1 o'clock on October 22nd, which is a week from this coming Tuesday, and the symposium takes place 7 o'clock that night. We are smack out of time. You've been listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all of the chemistry in your life comes out just right.